while back, I read some very interesting warning labels. And I want to take a few minutes just to share with you, bless you with this morning. The first was a bottle of liquid plumber. And on the warning label, it said, do not reuse the bottle to store beverages. No problem, right? I don't know about you, but I, I wouldn't think about doing that. There was uh, an iron used to iron clothes. And the warning label on this iron said, never iron clothes on the body. So if you're wearing your clothes, folks, don't use that iron to iron the clothes that you're wearing. Some of y'all may have done that. We'll keep you, you can remain anonymous. There was a box of matches that said, contents may catch fire. Hopefully so, right? Or they're defective. Uh, I saw an electric griddle that had a warning sign on it that said, warning, griddle may be hot after cooking. Now, how about this one? This one fits for East Texas. Saw a warning sign for a, a, a chainsaw that said, warning, do not hold the wrong end of chainsaw. All right. Sometimes warning labels and signs can be obvious, right? Sometimes they can be downright goofy and pointless, but at other times, warning signs and labels can be very, very helpful. We're going to learn in the text we're going to be looking at this morning that God has given us believers some warning signs in His Word that serve a very important purpose in our lives as Christians. And my hope this morning is, after we look at the rest of Hebrews chapter 3 this morning, my hope and prayer is that you would come to understand that these warnings that we get from God's Word are given, get this, because God is a gracious God. And they serve to benefit us, His people, and we should appreciate these warnings from his word. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 3 if you're not there already. We're continuing this study through the book of Hebrews entitled Jesus is Greater. And the reason our series has this title is because a major theme in Hebrews is on the fact that Jesus is supreme. He is better. He is greater. We have seen in the first two and a half chapters, the writer of Hebrews is going to great lengths to make this point. He begins by making the point that Jesus is God's greatest revelation. He is greater than angels. He is greater than Moses. He is better. He is supreme over everything. And the author of Hebrews, he gives us a whole lot of theology to back this up. We have seen just in our short time in this book that the first part of this book is just jam-packed with a ton of what we call Christology. Theology of Jesus and his person and work. But also, in addition to that, there is a practical side of this book that runs right alongside the theological. Not only is the author of Hebrews making the point that Jesus is greater, but he also wants to show his readers how they are to live in light of this truth. So Hebrews 3, in this passage we're going to look at today, the author makes a very clear and simple yet imperative point. The author makes the point here that because 
Jesus is supreme in every way. We as believers should, in light of that truth, keep believing in him, keep trusting in him. We're not to look away from him. We're not to look beyond him. We're not to drift from him, nor should we harden our hearts to him. That's the the main point the writer of Hebrews is making at the end of Hebrews 3. And though I know we camped out in this passage last week, let's look again briefly at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. The author of Hebrews says this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. In the NIV it says, Fix your thoughts on Jesus. I like that translation better because that is what the word translated consider means here. He's saying because Christ is supreme, fix your thoughts, set your sights, keep your gaze upon Jesus. Look to him, trust in him, give your life to him, keep trusting in him, keep believing in him, keep following him. The Jews in this day They needed to hear this. At this time in this day, there were many competing belief systems like there are today. Many doctrines, and some looked and sounded a lot similar, uh, very, very similar to Christianity, like, like they are today, but they're different. They're unbiblical, but they were being pitched as being better. This crowd was also considering re-embracing the old, that is, Old Testament Judaism, and they were elevating that above the Christian faith, and they were failing to see that Christ's person and work is, is better. They were failing to see that Christ is the fulfillment of all that was spoken by the prophets and priests and kings of old, and they were drifting. The author of Hebrews is writing to them to urge them not to do that. He's writing to say, fix your gaze. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. He's all you need. And without him, you don't have anything. The author wants those in his audience to know that and to keep believing, keep trusting, and keep following Jesus. And to help them do that, he gives them this warning passage here in Hebrews chapter 3 to help keep them on track spiritually. So we're going to look at the warning passage here, and I want you to notice that I've divided it up into positive and negative warnings. We're going to look at both and talk about both. First, let's begin by looking at the positive warnings. And let's start where we were last week. Look at verse 6 again of Hebrews 3. Look at it. Middle and end of the verse. He says, we are his house. Now, remember, house here is a metaphor for God's people. He's saying we are God's people. We are his true church if, indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Notice the conditional nature of this verse once again. The author is saying we are God's people. We are his church if we hold fast to our confidence in Jesus. If we keep looking to Jesus, if we keep trusting in him. This is a positive warning here. The author is telling those in his audience, you show yourselves to be God's people when you keep trusting, keep believing, and keep following him. It's a positive warning. 
for those Jews following Jesus. He's basically saying, are you trusting in Christ? Great, you are God's people. Those of you who keep trusting, keep believing, keep following Jesus, you are his. He says something similar in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. Skip down, look at it with me. He says, for we have come to share in Christ, what's the next word? If, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Once again, I I take this as being a positive warning to believers. The author is saying, you who are trusting in Christ, you who are God's people, you know you are God's people when you hold to the belief and the confidence that you had in the beginning. It's a positive warning that he's, he's giving them here to say you're on the right track, get back on the right track, stay on the right track, keep trusting, keep believing. The best illustration I can think of for these positive warnings is is this when you're on the road driving to a destination you have all of these signs along the way indicating letting you know that that you're on the right path right let's say if after church today I took off to drive to my hometown of Conway Arkansas as I drive I'm gonna see lots of signs along the way reminding me of where I'm headed And as I get closer, I'll see Texarkana, Arkansas, 40 miles. Little Rock, Arkansas, 60 miles. Conway, 20 miles. Welcome to Conway, right? Those signs, the way that I read those are like this. They are saying to me, oh, you're going to Conway? Almost to Texarkana. Still headed to Conway? Almost to Little Rock. Still going to Conway? 20 miles away. Welcome to Conway. Speed limit signs work in this way as well. Here's the way I read speed limit signs. Speed limit is 70. You can speed up a bit. Not very often, but sometimes. Are you going 65? Good. That's the speed limit. You're going a little too fast. Speed limit's 55. You need to bring it down. That's the way I read those signs. You? That's how these warning signs, these positive warning signs, are meant to be read by believers. Are you God's people? Are you trusting in Christ? Great. Keep trusting. Keep holding that original confidence you had in Christ firm till the end. Are you growing in godliness? Great. You should be. You should be growing in your Christian faith. Keep growing. They serve to give us confidence as Christians that we're on the right path. And we're going to learn in a minute the negative warnings. They're there to, they're to bring us back in check, right? When we're, when we're out of whack spiritually. That's the way these warning signs are meant to serve us as believers. The writer of Hebrews is saying, you know that your initial confidence in Jesus is genuine if you're still confident in him. You know you trusted in Jesus if you're still trusting in him. And I want you to notice something else here that's very, very important. Notice that this passage looks at where we are presently to make sense of the past. Very, very important that you see that. In this passage we're looking at, the writer looks at where they are at present to make sense of what took place in their heart and life in the past. This is not what many of us were taught growing up. When I was young and doubting my salvation, which I should have been because I was not a believer, I had... certain pastors and and youth guys that would often take me to the past to make sense of my present. Follow me? 
They would say, was there a time when you believed? Did you really believe it? Did you walk the aisle? Did you really mean it? Did you write it in your Bible? And if I said yes, okay, then you're fine in the present. That's not what the writer of Hebrews is doing here, right? It's not what God does in his word. He's saying, are you trusting now? That's where they should have taken me, to the present. Are you trusting now? Are you on the right path? If the answer is no, then there might be a problem. Not saying believers don't doubt and, and, and don't struggle. They do. But it's important to look at where you are in the present to make sense of the past. That right there is a pivotal point that the writer of Hebrews is making, and he's going to come back to over and over again. The present is there to help us make sense of the past. We're to look at the present to make sense of the past. Listen, if you are not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation today, if you are not a believer right now today, you never were. You never were. I shared with you last week about what my New Testament professor had to say about it when he was teaching on Hebrews and he he had a he had a clever saying he would say a faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty at the first that's exactly right that's what he's saying and I like to bring a positive spin to that statement and say a faith that finishes was fine at the first that's what he's saying that's the point so these these positive warnings they, they serve to to boost the confidence of genuine Christ followers so we should see these positive warnings here believers as God's grace to us God by his grace gives us these warnings throughout his word to remind us of where we should be spiritually and to give us assurance and to motivate us to keep believing keep trusting and keep following hard after Jesus so those are the positive warnings now let's look at the negative warnings the positive warnings basically say, are you going in this way? Good, keep going in that way. On the other hand, the negative warnings say, are you drifting? Are you off track? Don't drift. Don't be that way. Make a turn. Get back on track. Keep trusting, keep believing, keep following hard after Jesus. If the positive warnings are meant to boost the confidence of genuine Christ followers, the negative warnings are meant to redirect wayward Christ followers and we have quite a few negative warnings here right mentioned in hebrews chapter 3 and all throughout the book of hebrews in fact look at the number of verses that we haven't covered yet i would say i think you could argue that the negative warnings are the main emphasis in this passage of scripture which makes sense because the author is dealing with some apathetic believers who have drifted spiritually and so he's urging them to make a turn he's urging them to get back on track to not harden their hearts but to get busy living for God and again because it is clear that he's writing to believers here we're going to talk about that in just a minute why it is clear and because God tells them in his word that he keeps his people secure, I believe they heed the words of the author and they make a turn and make a change. Just my two cents there. But notice the negative warnings and notice how often the heart is mentioned in this passage. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, 
The Holy Spirit is speaking here, and the reason why he indicates that is because he is quoting Old Testament. He's quoting Psalm 95. And we know that men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, right? And so the writer here, like he does throughout, he's not putting an emphasis on the human authors as much as he is the divine authors. So he quotes the, from the Holy Spirit here. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. There's one. As in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened, we're going to count that one, by the deceitfulness of sin, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. I got five. The word heart is used four times. It's alluded to five times here. Verse 8, do not harden your hearts. Verse 10, they always go astray in their heart. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Verse 13, exhort one another that none of you may be hardened in your heart. Verse 15, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What's the major theme here with these negative warnings? The heart, right? The heart. The problem with this group of people, their issues stem from the heart. That's what needs to be addressed. This is so very, very important. The Bible has a lot to say about the heart, doesn't it? Now, what is the heart, scripturally speaking? Not just the organ inside of you, right? Now, I like the way Paul David Tripp defines it. He's one of my favorite Bible teachers and, and, and writers and Christian counselors, he says this. He defines the heart in this way. The heart is the causal core of your personhood. It is the core of who you are. And everything you say and do flows from the heart. And Scripture is clear that all problems we experience in life at the root are heart problems. Can I say that again? Scripture is clear that all the problems we experience in life at the root are heart problems. The problems with where we are emotionally and relationally and spiritually stems from inside of us, not outside of us. And that's good for us to hear because we always blame what's outside of us for our problems, don't we? We're having problems relationally. It's my husband's fault. It's my wife's fault. We're having trouble spiritually. It's the devil's fault. It's that false teacher's fault. God goes out of his way in his word to show us it's our fault. It's your fault. It's my fault. Remember what Jesus said about it? He said out of the overflow of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. What's inside of you comes out of your sweet lips. And also, out of the overflow of the heart, the hands and feet do, right? 
That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. Now, some get upset with this and say, I I thought you said the author of Hebrews was writing to believers. I I thought believers have had their hearts changed. When someone is changed, they're changed from the inside out, right? Don't we pray for God to change people's hearts so they'll be saved? If so, why does the author of Hebrews talk to believers about the problem of their hearts? Well, here's the reason. Though believers have been changed from the inside out, our want-tos have changed, our desires change. We have an, a, an ability within us because of the indwelling spirit to resist sin. We still struggle as a result of our hearts because though they've been changed our hearts are not yet where they need to be where they will one day be when jesus returns we as believers right now are in the process of being made more like jesus we're being sanctified and made more and more like him but we still struggle we still sin we're not yet where we need to be and will one day be when jesus comes back we need god to work in our hearts We need him to continue to change our hearts, giving us more of a heart like his and less of a heart like the old man. We need a new heart. We need him to work in our hearts so that we think rightly, believe rightly, live rightly. That's what the author is saying here about the heart. And notice what he says to them. He he quotes Old Testament once again, Psalm 95. And he quotes it to say, Don't harden your hearts. Don't stop believing, to quote Journey, right? I lost a few of you. Don't stop believing. He's using this psalm to address their hearts and saying, don't drift. Don't go astray in your hearts. Keep believing in Jesus. Keep trusting in him. Keep following him. In Psalm 95, the psalmist in that psalm is reminding his audience of the time when God delivered his people from Egyptian bondage. Y'all know this story, right? Many of you do. You remember this? In the story, God's people are in bondage, and God delivers them out, and he does so miraculously. He sends plagues. He delivers them out by parting the, the Red Sea. He leads them out miraculously. And here's the thing. All of those Israelites had witnessed God do this great, miraculous work. God also provided for them when they're in the wilderness, right? He brings water out of a rock in the wilderness. He brings bread down. He sends bread down to them from heaven. And what did that generation do as a result? They refused to believe God. They refused to trust in God. They refused to follow God. They set their hearts back toward Egypt, back toward bondage. And how did God respond? when they refused to believe, when they refused to trust and refused to follow him. What does it say? Look at verse 11. They shall not enter my rest. So what is the author of Hebrews saying here with this example? Why is he referring to this example? Well, think about the Jewish Christians he's writing to. They had witnessed miracles, right? He talks about that. They had seen the works of miracle-working apostles and disciples. They had seen it firsthand. They had seen God work miraculously in their heart and life, giving them a new nature, new desire, and everything. And he's, he's, he's making a comparison there. He's saying, don't be like the Israelites who witnessed the great work of God but turned away from him. 
He's giving them a strong warning here. He's saying, don't be like the unbelieving Jews in the Old Testament. You've been changed. You need to be redirected. You need to wake up. Your heart needs work. You're living like the wicked Israelites who perished in the wilderness. He talks about this again in verses 16 through 19. Look at it with me. He says, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? whose bodies fell in the wilderness. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? Verse 19, So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The author reminds his readers here that those who rebelled and perished in the wilderness, those who gave Moses such a hard time those who were not able to enter God's rest his promised land because of their disobedience and unbelief were those Israelites who were led out of Egypt by Moses they had seen God deliver them by his great hand and through his great man yet when they got out they turned their hearts back toward Egypt they set themselves against God and against his man And again, the the, the author of Hebrews is writing here to simply make the point, don't be like them. Don't be like the rebellious, pesky, disobedient, unbelieving Jews who were led out of the wilderness by God's man and through great signs and wonders and later turned against God and against his people. Don't be like them. Don't turn away from God's son. Don't look beyond him. Consider him. Fix your thoughts upon him. Set your eyes toward him. Don't harden your hearts against him. Don't stray. Stay on the right path. Don't turn to the the right or the left. Keep trusting. Keep believing. Keep following hard after Jesus. That's the point. That's the purpose of these warning signs, to keep them on the right path, to keep their sights on Jesus. He's saying Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. He is supreme. Don't drift. Don't turn away. Now, many, if they're being honest, they don't like warning passages like this. They don't like to focus on them. Makes them really, really uneasy. They think, man, don't teach those. You're just going to cause people to have worry and doubt. That's not what they're intended to do. Consider this illustration for a minute. Imagine that we were to go out from this place and there were no longer any warning signs. Which would you miss the most on the road? Me, I think I'd miss stop signs, right? Traffic lights, that would cause a mess in certain places, right? Speed limit signs, I mean, what if the cops were still handing out tickets, you know? We'd all be driving at a snail's pace. And I have to admit to you, I like to drive as fast as I can while still abiding by the speed limit, James Stewart, wherever he is. Y'all tell him that. But I don't like to go slower than I have to go, right? Do you ever get upset by those signs? You ever see a stop sign and be like, I know I'm supposed to stop here, and you just get angry that it's there. Maybe we get angry at certain speed limit signs because they're too slow, but not often, right? Well, in the same way, we should not get upset with warning signs in Scripture. We should not get upset 
when God says keep trusting. Don't harden your heart. Stay on the path. Keep trusting. Keep believing. God graciously gives us these warning passages to keep us on track and to redirect us when we have gone astray. They are given by God because God is a God of grace. They're not given to cause us anxiety. They're not meant to cause us to worry unless you have reason to worry. You're not truly trusting in Christ, and then I pray it does mess you up until you give your life up and over to him. But listen, if you're trusting in Christ alone for salvation, you should be encouraged in your faith and assured of your salvation when you read these. Even if you're going through a difficult time and you read these passages that, and they, they, they mess you up a bit, but they give you motivation to keep on keeping on. They redirect you back to Christ to get back on track for Christ. You should be encouraged by that because that's a sign that the Spirit of God is working in you. That's what these warning passages are meant to do so that we will continue in the faith and persevere. Now, what I'm trying to do this morning is simply explain to you what I believe to be the plain, simple meaning of Hebrews 3. I, I, I try to do that every Sunday. That's my aim, is to open up God's Word and explain what the plain, simple, literal meaning of the text of Scripture is. That's what I've tried to do this morning. And the reason I tell you that is because there are some who reject the way I've handled the text this morning. There are. There, there are some objections that I want to share with you this morning that people use when arguing against what I believe to be the plain, simple meaning of this passage of Scripture. And I want to take a moment to share these with you because you're going to encounter these, especially when you study the book of Hebrews. So I want to address these, and then I want to respond to them from God's Word. The first objection people have with this interpretation of Hebrews 3 is this. They say, the author of Hebrews does not seem to be speaking to Christians. Okay? Some argue that the author of Hebrews is writing to a group of Jews who are a part of the local church, but not the universal church. They are numbered with God's people physically, but not spiritually. They are around God's people, but are not God's people. Not trusting in Jesus alone for salvation. And they argue that's the reason for the warnings here that are given to kind of weed these people out. Well, that sounds good, but here's the problem with that. The problem is, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, and others like it, where the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share a heavenly calling. Now, if he just said brothers, we could argue it's a Jewish writer writing to a Jewish audience. Oftentimes, Jews refer to themselves as brothers. There was a time in the book of Acts when Paul is addressing non-believing Jews where he calls them brothers, but he doesn't call them holy brothers who share a heavenly calling. He's making it clear here. He is talking to a group of people who are spiritually numbered among God's people. Here's the second argument people have with this interpretation of Hebrews 3. They say this interpretation seems to support salvation by works. Some will say when you talk about examining yourself and keep trusting and keep following, man, it sounds like you're talking about keeping yourself saved. That sounds like a, a, a gospel of works. Some say, I believe in salvation by grace alone through faith in Christ alone, and this seems to fly in the face of that. Well, here's my response. I have two. One, the issue of works is really not present in Hebrews 3. The author is addressing an issue of faith. 
That's what he's talking about. That's the reason for the comparison with Old Testament Jews, right? Remember what he said? He's saying, don't be like them. And what did he say about them? Verse 19, he says, they were unable to enter God's rest. Why were they unable to enter God's rest? Why did they perish in the wilderness? Because of unbelief. Because of unbelief. What's the issue? A lack of faith is the issue. Works is not being talked about here. Unbelief is the issue. And I believe this text is consistent with the fact that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. No conflict whatsoever with the doctrines of grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Listen, if you're an unbeliever, you will not enter God's rest. Right? If you're an unbeliever, you will not enter God's rest. Very, very clear throughout Scripture. Here's the second response I have to that objection. The Bible clearly teaches that true faith, genuine faith, true salvation will produce and lead to future faith and good works. Let me say that again. The Bible clearly teaches that true faith, genuine faith, true salvation will produce and lead to future faith and good works. Now, good works don't save you. Don't hear me saying that. I'll never say that. We're saved by God's grace alone, through our faith alone, in Christ alone. But Scripture is also clear that our faith is never alone. It's never alone. It's accompanied with what comes with it is good works. Good works are the fruit of our faith, right? They're the fruit of our salvation, not the root, but, but the fruit that comes. Good works flow from genuine faith. Scripture is absolutely crystal clear on that. Now, do we ever mess up? Do we ever stray? Do we ever doubt? Of course we do. But we're messed up by it, right? And by God's Word, by His Spirit, by His church, we're, we're redirected, right? We get back on track and busy living for God and, and continue on. Keep believing in Him. We keep trusting Him and following Him. Well, one last objection people raise to this interpretation of Hebrews 3 is this. Some say this interpretation seems to fly in the face of eternal security. People think approaching Hebrews in this way, as if the writer of Hebrews is writing to believers, you're going to have problems with eternal security. People will say, what about once saved, always saved? Many believe in once saved, always saved. I believe in once saved, always saved. I believe in it strongly. I believe that when people are saved, truly saved, they remain saved. They're always saved. They cannot lose their salvation. One passage that we can point to, there's a lot of places we can go, but we read it earlier. Look at it up on the screen. John chapter 10. It's the words of Jesus. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So according to this verse, if you have been truly saved, will you always be saved? Absolutely. Absolutely. We're told that the Lord is the one who saves us. He gives us eternal life, and we will never perish. Then Jesus goes on to say twice that the one who is truly saved will not fall away. He says, they'll not be snatched out of my hand, that's the Son, nor will they be snatched out of my Father's hand. We are secure. If you've been saved, 
you will always be saved. You are secure. This verse is clearly teaching that. But let me show you what else this verse is clearly teaching. Look at the very first line of this passage. Jesus says, my sheep do what? Hear my voice. I know them and they do what? They follow me. My sheep follow me. Jesus is teaching two things here in this passage that we see all throughout Scripture. God's people are secure and God's people endure. God's people persevere. God's people are kept by God. They do not fall away and they keep trusting, keep believing, keep following hard after Him forever. Do they mess up again? Yes. Do they drift at times? Yes. Do they go through rocky and rough seasons? Yes. But, again, by God's Word, by His Spirit, by His church, by His people, they are, they are redirected and they get back on track and they persevere. They hear God's voice. He knows them and they follow Him. Followers of Christ follow Christ. So if you're here this morning and you're trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, if you're here and you're, you're looking to Christ, trusting in Him, following Him, that's proof that your faith is genuine. I hope and pray this morning that, that God just brings you great assurance of salvation as you study through these warning passages. If you're here and you're struggling this morning in your faith, but you're listening to these words and you're, you're thinking to yourself, I need to bring these issues I'm having before the Lord. I need to get back on track spiritually. I need to be more committed to studying God's word and spending time communing with God in prayer and ministering to others. That's a great sign that the Spirit of God is at work. But if you're here this morning and you can't relate to that at all, none of that, here's my prayer for you. If you're here this morning, you're not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. You've got to respond to Jesus. You've got to turn from your sin. You have to look to Him as your Lord. And you have to give your life up and over to Him to be secure to be held in Christ's hand, to be held in the Father's hand. You have to give your life up. You have to make Him Lord. Not just add Him as your little personal Savior that keeps you out of hell. You need to surrender your life over to Him. Give the reins of your life up and over to Jesus. Make Him your Lord and be saved. If you've never done that, I pray you would right here, right now, today. Let's pray.